Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Good evening. How's everybody doing? It's good. Well, strap yourself in because this is a very long and convoluted scripture. And um, so we're going to ask the Lord to, to show us how we can understand it so that we are better able to follow him. Matthew chapter 5, verse, starting with verse 21. You know our ancestors were told, do not murder, and a murderer must be brought to trial. But I promise you, if you're angry with someone, you'll have to stand trial. If you call someone a fool, you'll be taken to court. And if you say that someone is worthless, you'll be in dangers of the fire of hell. So if you're about to place your gift on the altar and remember that someone is angry with you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, make peace with that person, then come back and offer your gift to God. Before you're dragged into court, Make friends with the person who's accused you of doing wrong. If you don't, you'll be handed over to the judge and then to the officer who will put you in jail. I promise you will not get out until you've paid the last cent you owe. You know the commandment which says be faithful in marriage. But I tell you, if you look at another woman and want her, you're already unfaithful in your thoughts. If your right eye causes you to sin, Poke it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to end up in hell. It's getting worse, isn't it? Like it's just going down and down. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've been taught that a man who divorces his wife must write out divorce papers for her. But I tell you not to divorce your wife unless she's committed some terrible sexual sin. If you divorce her, you will cause her to be unfaithful, just as any man who marries her is guilty of taking another man's wife. You know, our ancestors were told, don't use the Lord's name to make a promise unless you're going to keep it. And But I tell you not to swear by anything when you make a promise. Heaven is God's throne, so don't swear by heaven. The earth is God's footstool, so don't swear by the earth. Jerusalem is the city of the great king, so don't swear by it. Don't swear by your own head. You cannot make one hair white or black. You can make it pink, but outside of that, when you make a promise, say only yes or no. Anything else comes from the devil. You know you've been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to try to get even with the person who's done something wrong to you. When someone slaps your right cheek, turn and let that person slap your other cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one kilometre, carry it two kilometres. When people ask you for something, give it to them. When they want to borrow money, lend it to them. You've heard people say, love your neighbours and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. Then you'll be acting like your Father in heaven. That's a very key line there. Then you'll be acting like your Father in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both good and bad people and he sends rain for the ones who do right and for the ones who do wrong. If you love only those people who love you, will God reward you for this? Even tax collectors love their friends. If you greet only your friends, what's so great about this? Don't even unbelievers do that? But you must always act like your Father in heaven. 
To understand the Sermon on the Mount, which is so clearly opposite to everything that we understand about surviving in this world, we need to understand Jesus' position in the world. Because the God who created the universe deliberately came to the world as the oppressed rather than the oppressor. His people group were the conquered, not the conquerors, although bizarrely, much of Christian history revolves around the fact that the church has been the conqueror, the invader, the takers, rather than the givers. When we look at the garden in Genesis, and then we look at the city in Revelations chapter 21 and 22, it's clear to see what God always intended for our world. But when Jesus came, he arrived in the middle of that absolute mess that is between the garden and the city. He arrived in the middle of a mess that had been created by people because they'd forsaken what God had originated for them, intended for them in the first place. So here Jesus is talking to people who want change. I don't know whether you've ever seen that meme where it says there's a guy standing on the platform and he says, who wants change? Everybody puts their hand up. And then he says, who wants to change? And nobody put their hand up, right? And so we don't necessarily realise that all the change we need to see out there is going to start from on the inside of us here. So he's talking to people who really want change. They really want healing. They really want restoration. And he's saying to them, if you want to take your part in ushering the kingdom of heaven into your generation, this is the beginning of it. If you're trying to bring the kingdom of heaven into your locale, into the, your people group, this is the way forward. This is how you can change to become like me. And in doing so, this is how the kingdom of heaven will come through you. So Jesus wasn't born into a palace. He entered backstage through a door that identified him as poor and despised and humiliated. As a toddler, he was a refugee fleeing with his parents to Egypt because a little tin pot king, Herod, who was actually only a puppet of the Roman Empire, was afraid of losing the tiny little bit of power that he had and as a result, hundreds of baby boys were murdered. Think of your own baby boy. He was surrounded, Jesus was surrounded by death and poverty and cruelty. Crucifixion was a death for slaves, for disgraced soldiers, for insurgents and for Jews. It wasn't for Romans. And so when people were crucified, they were whipped and they were nailed to the cross. Sometimes it took them up to four days to die. There was one particular point in Roman history where there was insurrection and all of the people, there were a few thousand people who were captured and put on crosses. And so the crosses stretched for 600 miles along the Appian Way. Every 40 metres, somebody was there crucified. So Jesus and all the people that he was hanging out with were absolutely used to the cries of agony and the smell of rotting flesh and the sounds of the carrion birds and the desperation of families who would, couldn't do anything to alleviate the pressure from the people that they loved who were dying up there. So when Jesus talked to them about taking up their cross to follow him, he was saying to them, if you want to follow me, 
everything about your life is going to have to die and things who you are will change. He, when, when he talked about taking up your cross, it required serious thinking from the people because the, even the mention of the cross, surrounded by crosses as they were, struck absolute dread into their hearts. Now, that scripture that I just read, we can't go through everything that he said blow by blow because if we did, that would make them into a set of rules. Jesus is saying anybody who wants to follow him has got to live differently and living differently always comes from the heart and not from following the rules. So everything that Jesus called people to was countercultural. And this Sermon on the Mount encapsulate that. So his three years of ministry were never about his social status or yours or mine or anybody else's. There were no celebrity followers of Jesus in those days and Jesus himself never took the role of a, of a celebrity. He was a member of a subjugated people who had no power and no political rights. He made it clear that it would cost them heavily to follow him because he's the God of the disinherited, not the famous and the powerful. And yet the church in the West is so rich and so powerful that it's difficult for us. We struggle to understand how this sermon translates for us. Now, I remember Rick and I going once to Rome for a few days when we lived in England and one of, you know, we obviously went to the Vatican and we saw the Sistine Chapel and we went into St. Peter's Basilica. If you happen to be Roman Catholic here, I am not having a go at the Roman Catholics, so let me say that first. But I remember that we were absolutely overwhelmed by St. Peter's Basilica. It it reminded me of Aldi's before Aldi's had its makeover and became kind of ordered. Everywhere, everywhere you walked through St. Peter's Basilica, there were objects of art that were worth millions of dollars. And there were so many of them that you couldn't really look at one because there was another one and there was another one. David was there and all these different ones. And it was just, you just looked at it. And I remember, you know, just thinking about the fact I don't even think Pope Francis would really have liked, you know, to have liked what is there now. But I just thought it was worth billions of dollars. But Jesus didn't come for, he didn't come to the rich and he didn't come to be rich. He came for the disinherited, the disempowered, the marginalised. And he resisted the spiritual powers of power and of callousness and of wealth, and he did it using only spiritual weapons. Now, there's a scripture in Corinthians that says, uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to pull down strongholds. You know, the thing is, sometimes it's quite difficult to, to differentiate whether we're using carnal weapons cloaked in spiritual language or whether we're actually using spiritual weapons. Because it's, it's easy for Christians to automatically think because we're Christians, we're using godly weapons against the powers of evil. But often it can turn out to be our own opinions cloaked in spiritual language. 
And if you want an example of that, I can tell you how the Christians in the South of America justified slavery and justified incredibly tortuous ways of treating other people because they had convinced themselves that slavery was a Christian, you know, a, a Christian right. And maybe looking the same as the white settlers that came to Australia and some of the incredibly vicious and cruel and tortuous things that were done to the indigenous people here, much of it in the name of Jesus, I'm going to take your children from you because I'm a good Christian and you're not going to look after them as well as we will if we put them in, you know, those little places that those kids were put. There's a lot of ways in which Christians can validate what we do because we're cloaking our opinions and our prejudices in spiritual language. And the 21 centuries of history tells us that that is what happens. You know, using God's name, that's why it says don't take the Lord's name in vain because it's not about saying, oh, God, I, I you know, bumped my toe. It's about saying this is what the Lord is saying when actually – Maybe it is not what the Lord's saying, but we're so committed to our belief system that we don't stop and say to the Lord, what is it that you're saying about this? And it's very clear that in every culture, actually in the world, our culture and our Christianity are often put together and they're conflated and we think that how we do church is what real Christianity is about. But if we went to Indonesia or Afghanistan, Christianity there looks quite different to what it looks here. Jesus is calling us to live in a different way. And often, just because we've grown up thinking this is what God said, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's just what somebody who wore a collar said. And we need to be asking the Lord again, what are you saying to us? It's very easy to conflate our culture and our Christianity and not realize that we are doing that. So the Sermon on the Mount requires honesty with ourselves, and it also requires honesty with God about ourselves. But the difficulty is that we find it easier to be honest about each other, what you need to deal with, how you need to deal with it, where you need to go, and yet Jesus is saying to us, I want you to deal with you. I want you to deal with your own hearts. And often we deal with the words of Jesus like the Sermon on the Mount by deciding that they're impossible to follow. And the truth of it is we're still going to go to heaven even if we don't do that. But we lose the astonishing privilege of becoming more like him and we lose the privilege of having a part in ushering in the right side up kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide, so many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road is difficult, so few people find it. Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law but to fulfil it. Now, laws are there to enable society to run smoothly for the well-being of people. We find ways to break those laws and so in order to fix that up, we put more laws in place, but we find ways to break those as well. But Jesus came to reinforce the reason the law is there, 
to show people how to live on earth as it is in heaven. So he takes what the law and society agree together will keep the peace and then he ups the ante and he says this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. I want you to work toward embodying it like I do. So in heaven there's no murder because people don't otherize each other. They don't call each other names, names that end up dehumanizing whole people groups and escalates to hatred and then murder and sometimes, often, actually not sometimes, genocide. Everybody in heaven is treated with the same dignity because they're made in the image of God. But this is the point. Everybody on earth is made in the image of God also. So when we look in the eyes of somebody, even if we can't identify with them, can't identify with the way they live or how they deal with the issues of their life, we still know you are made in the image of God and you deserve all the dignity that I can give you. There's no need to make oaths because people will answer honestly and directly. They can say yes or they can say no and you can trust their word. It's about your word, not about their word, actually. They can trust your word being, being about the fact that I don't twist the truth to make myself into the hero and I don't twist the truth to make myself into the victim, that I don't twist the truth to, to not have to take responsibility for what went wrong, but that I can just answer yes or no and people will know by reputation that I always tell the truth. No one will need to get revenge because they'll love their enemy as well as they love their neighbour and their God. And so that is what will enable a fallen world to be changed by the power of the good news of Christ. But it's totally countercultural. Now, it may not change the entire world, but it will change the, the world of the person who's looking for ways to obey rather than evade obeying that sermon. People won't own each other. Women won't be blamed for the lust of men. They won't be questioned about what they wore. Nor will they be required to cover up every single piece of skin because people will take responsibility for their own lust rather than blaming the objects of their lust for their lust. No woman will be abandoned in divorce because her husband wanted an upgrade but also no husband will be discarded. See, when Jesus talked about divorce, he was not actually talking about divorce per se because in the main, in that time, men weren't charged with adultery. They could have as many wives as they wanted, really. Not only could they do that, but also if they got sick of this wife because she was getting old or getting fat or wasn't a good cook or wasn't having sons or wasn't having children, all they'd have to do is write her a certificate of divorce and she'd be gone out on the street and there was no social welfare. So when Jesus was talking about divorce, you know, don't give your wife a certificate of divorce. It was a social justice issue he was addressing, not an issue of actually divorce. Because, And I want to make it plain here. I, I mean, my husband was a divorced man. We were married for 46 years. But, you know, and I remember in the early days when we first became Christians, the church was pretty upset and didn't really want Rick to become part of the church that we were in because he was divorced. So this isn't about divorce, right? Divorce is not and never was the unforgivable sin. 
This was about social justice and the care of women who were being discarded. He not only says that, he doesn't only say don't commit adultery, but he says don't even think about it. He says deal with your issues, deal with your own issues. And that's for women as well as for men. And this is the point. By the time you've plucked out your right eye and then you've cut off your right hand, you find out that you can still lust because you've still got another eye and a hand left over. And by the time you've plucked out your left eye and cut off your left hand as well, you can still find that people who are blind and have no hands still have a problem with lust. So the issue isn't get rid of parts of your body or make the woman cover herself you know, completely so there's no skin showing. He's saying, I want you to live in a different way. I want you to to walk in a different way. I want you to deal with your heart, not with other people's hearts. I want you to deal with your own heart. The rules are in place to deal with other people, but Jesus says, when you deal with yourself, that is the kingdom of God coming in your neck of the woods. Because loving your enemy is a radical action and not Every relationship can be restored, and that's the truth of it. In fact, many relationships can't be restored. But forgiveness and prayer for people who have done us wrong is a radical act of the kingdom. It's a radical act of love. Jesus says when we do that, we make it clear that we're children of our Father, which is absolutely mind-blowing. And our willingness to do that is a measure of the degree to which we are determined to look like our Father. It's about resembling the one who left the stunning beauty of heaven, took off perfection and put on humanity so that he could become one of us to suffer cold and heat and sand in his sandals and being beaten and rejected and cursed and lied about and ultimately killed. And in the process of doing that, he just kept saying, Dad, forgive them. They, they've got no idea what they're doing. They, they just think they're killing me, but they don't know the ramifications of what this is going to cost the world. And so when we, we stand and we pray, Lord, I want to be more like you. When we worship, Lord, make me more like you which we've all done and probably do quite often, this particular point in that, in that scripture, loving our enemies, is one of the truest tests to the degree that we actually mean that prayer that we're praying. Because none of us can make anyone else's heart right, not even Jesus. It has to be our own choice every single day. How strongly you followed or I followed the Lord a decade ago how long I spent in Bible college isn't relevant on the 19th of June, 2022. Today is the day I need to make that choice. And the best we can do in this is to make rules and regulations to follow. But Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to take it from being a set of rules that can operate outside of our hearts to become a way of life that stems from the fact that we are children who look like our father. And he, he drew a, a line in the sand between legalistically attempting to gain approval by following the rules and which most of us will certainly me work pretty hard just to even try and get a pass mark 
to emulating Jesus because we want to look like our dad. So Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what if when people saw us, they might get a glimpse of the Father? When we live like him, when our eyes hold the same expression of forgiveness and love and compassion, because rules can't mimic that family resemblance. No matter how much we follow the rules, it's not going to make us look like Jesus because it's a deliberate choice of our heart made repeatedly through the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health, when we're broke and when we just got a bonus because he's saying that our choices to keep loving our enemy are what authenticate the family resemblance within us. He says that they will know that we are Christians by our love. And I used to think that that meant by our love for each other as the church. But actually, there's no qualification for it. It's just by our love. Not that old trope, I, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. I just want to say that's not in the Bible. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. It's not in, even in the Bible. Probably most of us have said it. I certainly have said it. But Jesus has never said that. He says, because the thing about, the thing about I hate the sin but I love the sinner is that it implies that I, who am the person speaking it, am not sinning. Because if I'm going to hate the sin and love the sinner, it kind of puts me in a place of I'm not doing anything anywhere near as bad as that. So therefore... I can say this, but Jesus never, never, never said it. He said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sin is like being pregnant. Being a sinner is like being pregnant. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't be a little bit of a sinner. And so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He loved us without any conditions and he never said, I hate your sin but I love you. He said, I'm just going to lay down my life because I know that between the garden and the city there's just been this terrible mess and I'm just coming into the middle of the mess. I'm not going to try and differentiate and say this sin is worse than that. I'm just going to come in the middle and I'm going to die for all of it, even for your own even for our own little bits of issues that nobody else knows about. And so he loved us without any conditions. And it says there that every one of us, whether we've got faith in him or not, get to sing in the sunshine and get to dance in the rain. He doesn't divide it up. I'm only going to send rain for people who love me. So the only way that people will see that we are children of, it, of our Father is by our love. Talking about love can sound really anemic, especially if we're more legalistic than we understood. Legalism doesn't understand grace. I certainly never did. I am a recovering legalist and you can just ask my kids, right? It's taken me years to understand the grace of God and I'm still working on it now. But he says that after everything else is done and over with, only love remains. I don't want to get into heaven and find out that all my rule keeping and all my attempts to get other people to follow the rules was misguided and that if I'd only loved them more, that people would have seen my father more clearly and would have been drawn to him because of how I loved them. 
if only love remains, we'd better get comfortable with loving because heaven is full of love. Love is the predominant emotion. And legalism can't keep us out of heaven, but it will keep us from the privilege of allowing other people to see the Father through my life. Our world is mortally wounded, and it's clear that rules aren't going to be able to save it. Only the love of God can save it. And the Bible says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. That means in my little corner of the universe, God's love can be shown through me. And the love of God in your little corner of the universe can be shown to other people through you because you resemble your Father by the way that you love. And they will know that we are Christians by our love for everyone. The kingdom of God is about transforming each of us, followers of Jesus Christ, that we become transformed so that we will be agents of transformation to our world. It's only like it's so hard and it's so easy. That scripture that I read, it's, it's you know, just look at it and it's like, <laughs> well, how can I not be angry? How can I not, you know? There's so many things there. You know your own things. You look and you think, I don't know that I can do that. But if we look for ways to obey just in this situation today, just this one, not next year, not making a rule and say you're never allowed to call somebody a fool ever again. If they go past you in the car and they cut you up, you're not allowed to say, you idiot, get out of my way. You can't do it. You can't make that rule. You can only ask the Lord to help you not do it yourself. You can't make a rule for everybody else. Everybody in this church from now on, if anybody calls anybody an idiot, you docked your wages or or something, you know. No. But I can look for ways to braver that person who just cut me up in traffic instead of telling them, well, instead of questioning their parents, their parenthood. Right? It's, it's for me to do. Only for me to do about me, right? Only for you to do about you. Because rules and regulations aren't going to save the world. Only love is going to save the world. And I can't make you do it, but I can work on it on the inside myself. Father, in the name of Jesus, we look at a scripture like that and it's just blooming impossible. We just don't even know where to begin. And yet, Lord, you've called us to begin. And you've, you've even said to us, it's a narrow, little, tiny road. It's a very narrow gate. Maybe as we bend down to get through that gate, some of the things that we thought were precious are knocked away from our lives. And, Lord, that's a good thing. And we welcome that, even though it's hard. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us, each one of us in our own hearts, not that we think, oh, I hope she heard that because, or I wish he would get a hold of that because, but, Lord, that each of us would think, yeah, I'm just going to take it a day at a time and I'm going to take it an, an action at a time and I'm going to take it a thought at a time and, Lord, I want to be more like you and I want people to see that I resemble my father, that there's a family likeness, Lord, that people will be drawn to you because of that. I just pray, Lord, that there'll be an outpouring of your blessing on our lives and your enabling by the Holy Spirit 
so we can do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.